Welcome to the IEA podcast. My name is Matthew Ash and I'm the Head of Public Policy here at the IEA. Each week this podcast asks a tantalising policy question to a top political and economic thinker. Today's question, is the NHS broken? National Health Service has often been associated with a national religion, an unassailable British achievement and celebrated cultural icon. Yet today there are a record 6.6 million people on waiting lists, thousands of excess deaths each month that have been associated with waiting for urgent care, and polls indicate growing numbers are losing faith in the system. To discuss whether the NHS is broken and what can be done, I'm very excited to be joined by Kate Andrews, who is the economics editor at The Spectator and formerly of this parish. Kate has been writing about the need to overhaul the NHS for many years, including an excellent Spectator cover story, Hospital Pass, the NHS is on life support, which, which feels like eons ago, and yet we're still having the same discussion. Kate, welcome. Hi, Matt. Thanks for having me. So, Kate, I kind of what, what do we think the British public's current experience is with the NHS? So, if you're a patient uh, through the NHS, you're having a very tough time, most likely right now. Chances are uh, your wait to be seen by a healthcare professional has been extended. Goodness forbid you need an ambulance right now. You may be waiting longer than ever before. Um, some of the numbers which we can get into, Matt, around this are, are, are really very frightening. I think there's always been a sense in the UK, given the revered status of the NHS and given general attitudes towards uh, healthcare, which I think is largely driven by politics in this country, um, that you should be quite grateful for whatever you receive. There has always been more of a willingness to wait and to put up with some of those bureaucratic frustrations because it is quote unquote free. Of course, we know nothing is free. People are paying thousands of thousands of pounds for the NHS every year through their taxes, but the sense is that it's, it is free at the point of view, so that's certainly true. Um, and one has to wonder if some people are getting more frustrated now and if uh, the willingness to forgive um, is, is starting to diminish because we are now seeing numerous studies, and I think there was a, a recent one in the Sunday Times, that show growing dissatisfaction with the NHS. Uh, and indeed, there have been some studies recently that point to more people being dissatisfied with the NHS than satisfied. Now, as free marketeers who I think broadly speaking would really like to see major reform in the NHS that looks something more like what a lot of European countries have, which is still universal access to healthcare, but more market mechanisms to actually provide it. We can't read too much into these figures because very often when people are frustrated with the NHS, what they really mean is they're frustrated with the government that they don't think has properly managed the NHS. Uh, you know, when the NHS does well, the NHS gets praised. When the NHS doesn't do well, the government gets criticized. Mm. It's very convenient for the NHS that it works out that way. So we shouldn't read too much into it, but tragically something, you know, I've been pointing to, Matt, I think you've been pointing to for many years is that it would take a serious crisis for people to open their eyes to the realities of the NHS. And no one ever wants that to happen because it inevitably means pain and suffering and frankly, more death than you'd want to see. But with excess deaths very high this year, which is very strange, uh, given that after COVID, we thought excess deaths would probably be at record lows and they seem to be extremely high. We are facing that crisis now. And I, I do think it's allowing for more of an honest conversation about the NHS than we've had before. Yeah, look, I'm interested in back at this point a bit because as you referenced that the Sunday Times um, ran on the front page uh, last weekend, a poll that indicated that half of Brits are not confident that they will receive timely care, while 45% believe the system 
is getting worse. While we're hearing these almost daily stories, quite harrowing and, and sad stories, people dying, waiting for ambulances, suboptimal care in A&E, staff leaving in droves. And yet at the same time, you have this dynamic where the NHS is something that, particularly, I suppose, outside of our circles, is, is shouldn't be criticised. And any criticism is seen as uh, some nefarious um, effort to destroy the system and and privatize it and give it to you know U.S. insurance barons. Do we almost have a sense of um, collective cognitive dissonance when it comes to NHS? On the one hand, the experience of it day to day is, is just getting worse and worse, but the love for the system doesn't really seem to diminish. And certainly in the, in the political field, there doesn't seem to be that much interest uh, in criticizing the system or restructuring the system or changing how it operates. Well, there's definitely no interest in the political sphere because goodness forbid you are the politician that comes out and talks the tough truths on the NHS. You probably won't be getting reelected, nor will your party, if people think you'll have anything to do with the healthcare system, because there has been a very um, successful attempt in the UK, as you say, to paint anybody who talks about reform as somebody who wants to, well, you ticked all the boxes there, Matt, privatize the NHS, sell it to America, as if the the NHS and the US system are the only two systems that exist. Um, far more exist. Frankly, the two mentioned there are both quite awful in their own ways. Um, so, you know, un unfortunately, there, there is no political appetite for this. And we've seen that in the leadership race so far. I mean, Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss have taken NHS reform completely off the table, despite the fact that healthcare is expected to make up roughly 45 of government's day to day spending in the next couple of years. Sorry. 45% of, of uh, government day-to-day -day spending in the next couple of years. I mean, we are truly getting to a place where we're a healthcare system with a bit of a government attached. And still we can't talk about reform, but I do think that's changing. I mean, would you see pieces like this in the Sunday Times maybe five, six years ago? That's not to say the Sunday Times wouldn't be interested in reporting it five or six years ago, but there might not be the same kind of appetite um, because these numbers are getting so frightening. I mean, just last month in July, over close to 30,000 people were waiting 12 hours or more to be admitted to a and &E. I mean, these are record numbers. If you go back a few years, it was nothing like these figures. And of course, it has a terrible knock-on effect. You know, if, if you can't get into A&E, the people who need the ambulances that you're currently sitting in can't get access to ambulances. It's, it's all really frightening stuff. And Matt, you mentioned the 6.6 .6 million people on the waiting list now. That number is estimated to rise to over 9 million by winter 2024. Um, that was actually reported uh, earlier this year in The Spectator. And, and that's the central scenario. If, if things get worse, and they may well get worse, we're looking at over 10 million people on the waiting list by 2024. These are unsustainable figures, um, not just for society, but I would also argue politically. Uh, mm. and they should terrify the government because how on earth are you gonna go into an election with so many people waiting for healthcare? Um, it's not politically sustainable, but it, it really isn't sustainable for day-to-day for -day life because you know these aren't just numbers they represent patients and patients who in many cases were put off getting health care for a year or two years uh, because of a lot of the messaging around the pandemic which meant people didn't show up to the GP. Yeah I'm, I'm interested in this point about whether or not we're starting to see I, I suppose the, the the green shoots of a potential political debate about reform. I mean the week before the Sunday Times had an article um, about these this polling results, they had an, an, a kind of extended um, feature piece that discussed um, issues with the healthcare system that quite explicitly mentioned all, all the alternatives. It didn't really endorse them per se, but it mentioned Germany, I mentioned Netherlands. It said that there is an alternative way. And I think that's 
kind of opening up debate in the same way during um, the, the midst of COVID. I don't know if you remember, there was a bit of a small period where we were talking about Germany and Germany's decentralized system leading to much more access to testing and more effective delivery. I think it's worth unpacking um, what, what we mean when we criticize the NHS though, because I think there's often a confusion here when we say we, we don't like the current structure of the NHS. We, we don't necessarily get into, I suppose, enough depth about what we don't like about the structures and what we'd like to say replace it. So I, I'm sure um, you'd agree with me that in principle that we want to see universal care. We, we, we want to see everybody having access to healthcare. We're just not so sure that it needs to be delivered entirely by the state and funded entirely by the state or almost entirely by the by the state. What do you see is that the what what I suppose fundamentally needs to be fixed about the NHS that would get it more in the direction of other countries whilst delivering on that broad principle? So I think it's important to remember that of all the developed countries in the world, the US is essentially the only outlier that it doesn't provide universal access. So if we want to adopt another system or look at reforms that offer universal access to healthcare, meaning you will get access to healthcare regardless of your ability to pay, then we can look at essentially all of them apart from the US, which gives us a lot of options. Of course, people who the NHS files don't want to talk about that because they want to make sure that we only talk about uh, the US. But fundamentally, the, the NHS, there are a lot of routes we could go down here, but, you know, to put it in, in, in the shortest way I can, it is one of the most centralized healthcare systems in the world. Um, it is also one of the only healthcare systems in the world that people don't cherry pick from because there's very little you want to take from it. Um, every system rations, but the NHS, because it is so centralized and because it is funded and essentially run by government, it mostly rations with waiting times um, and, and stopping your ability to access healthcare. Uh, and it's always been that way since its creation in the late 1940s, um, but that we've we've seen and we've always seen the effects of that rationing to be very clear. Your colleague Christian Nemitz at the IA has done incredible work on this that mm. simply based on systems alone, thousands more people die from different types of common cancer in the UK every year compared to European counterparts because of the system, often because of that rationing and that inability to access healthcare in a timely manner. So it's always been there and we've always been talking about it. But COVID has really highlighted in a very fast and very acute way the extent to which this rationing is take, taking place and the extent to which people just can't get access to healthcare. You need more competition in the system, you need more patient choice in the system, and you need to lure private providers into the system because that is how we increase capacity. And frankly, you also need to lure more healthcare workers. And doctors and nurses don't tend to immigrate to the UK because the system isn't very well paid. It's, it's, they're seriously overworked. We don't treat our, our healthcare staff, um, our very professional and hardworking healthcare staff uh, with often the respect and compensation that they deserve. So you actually see a lot of doctors and nurses going to other European countries or Australia or New Zealand, they're not coming here. Um, so, you know, that's kind of a, a short overview of the major issues we have in the NHS. Still, people will only talk about tinkering. And again, to go back to the point I made before, my fear has always been that you can talk about tinkering until it, you know, that we're genuinely on the face of collapse. And I don't want to catastrophize here. I don't want to say, well, you know, this winter will be the winter where it all falls apart. Um, but it's telling that, you know, it's not you, it's not me. It's always been sort of headlines in the media that have been talking about the NHS on the brink of collapse long before COVID hit. 
And I do fear this winter is going to be especially bad. We're going to be facing flu on top of COVID, which we haven't actually experienced before. COVID has kept flu at, at very, very low levels. Um, it's still the summer. It's still warm outside. And we, you know, the, the, the numbers are just off the scale for um, waiting lists and shortages and the rest of it in the NHS. Uh, and so by the time we get to winter, and then of course, combine that with high energy bills and the risk that more people are going to be keeping their heating low or turning it off altogether this winter, we have a lot of factors coming together that I think could create a real mess. Uh, it's going to be a very tough winter for the NHS. And I do wonder if you'll get more Sunday Times long reads as we did last weekend, looking at alternatives and being, you know, just far more open to what's actually taking place in countries that neighbor the UK, as opposed to what's happening in the United States. Yeah, I remember uh, having a, a chat with a junior doctor not long ago, someone very much from the, the left side of politics, but often when you're doing your training, you can spend some time overseas. And a lot of British doctors and nurses end up spending a little bit of time in Australia. And though he didn't necessarily identify the key features of the Australian healthcare system, he found from just his own experience that something seems to operate better in the Australian system compared to the UK. And there's something to be learned from there. I think you could probably have a similar experience whether um, you, if you went to Germany or, or whether you, you went to Israel, the Netherlands, or a lot of other places that have slightly different models of healthcare. What I'm kind of just unpacking though is um, how you get to more competition in the NHS. So we, we've obviously had various efforts of reform, you know, it goes dating back to the Thatcher era, we have a kind of internal market within the NHS, which is meant to price things and be competitive. Now, I, you could arguably say it's a bit like how the Soviet Union had an internal market system that, that set prices and controlled things centrally. It didn't exactly um, lead to a particularly effective system. Uh, and, and all we hear about when we hear about NHS reform are effectively all these restructures, this huge bureaucratic changes. You know, we had another one last year, you had one in 2012. The opponents of all these will say, no, no, it's not about the structures, it's just about funding, putting more funding into the system. But I'm wondering when, when you say more competition, what, what you would mean by that in practice? Are you imagining uh, uh, specifically people having moving quite radically to a social insurance model where um, people had a choice between different insurance providers uh, and, and some of that care was provided publicly, some of that privately? Um, or would you, would you favour, I guess, in the shorter run, some more moderate reforms like uh, NHS vouchers, where if, if you don't get your care, you get to go and use another provider, potentially a private provider, or um, potentially what we do in Australia quite a lot is subsidised private healthcare. We we create a big tax incentive. Um, you get discounts on your tax if, if you have private healthcare. What I, what do you, what do you, do you see as needing to be restructured to have that more radical change to get the competition that you talk about? Well, don't get me wrong. I think, say, Sajid Javid was flirting with this idea when he was health secretary for, albeit a, a limited period of time, about, um, you know, what might be possible down the road in terms of some kind of voucher system. Um, but I think as much as I would love to see a system like that come in, I'm much more interested now in talking about the more radical reforms, like moving to a so social health insurance system for exactly the reasons you lay out, Matt. We have had so many reforms within the NHS, even just over the past few decades. Every government wants to put their stamp 
on the NHS. Uh, and it means a lot of time, a lot of attention, and a lot of money is wasted on what end up being not especially successful reforms. And one of the major reasons for that is, you know, you can talk about internal competition all you want, but if there is nowhere really that's challenging you, if there's no meaningful alternative to the healthcare that you're being provided, uh, because ultimately it's all falling under the same umbrella and the same structure, that's not real competition. Um, and private healthcare in the UK is extortionate. It's excellent, but it is just not affordable for the vast majority of people because there is such little competition. I'm much, you know, there are a lot of systems I'm interested in and I'd probably cherry pick from a bunch of them. But if you go to Germany, you go to Switzerland, we need more private competitors coming into this market and people who couldn't afford them, people who can't afford them should absolutely be subsidized by the state to be able to, to act access healthcare. Um, I'm also interested in what some of the Scandinavian countries do around the independent and charity sectors uh, working in healthcare as well. It doesn't just have to be for profit, it can also be nonprofit. Uh, but the point is, it, it's what we've learned, I think, from a lot of these reforms is it's very difficult to actually create meaningful internal competition when there is one provider. Uh, and, and that has to change. And there's going to have to be a lot of incentive to get new uh, providers in, but most importantly, there has to be a belief on their behalf that they're going to be customers to serve. Um, maybe you start that with a voucher system. You know, maybe you start bringing in new providers by suggesting that NHS patients could actually take that money elsewhere. Um, but we have to start figuring out how to get more providers into the market because having one massive government body serve the entire population essentially is not planning out. It has not been. It is not. It's not working out. It hasn't been working out for a very long time. I think far too many patients have had to suffer because of the centralized system. And it's just interesting since COVID, you know, cancer patients were, were, were dealing with this long before COVID came along, but since COVID, um, all the ailments that are stacking up on that 6.6 .6 million waiting list is getting a lot more news attention than it used to. And it's grim, it's horrible. I wish it weren't happening. Um, it, I, I, Again, sad to say, it was always going to take a, a real moment like this, though, to get us talking about it. Mm. So, uh, just a final thought I, I wanted to get your, your comments on. Um, I was uh, involved recently with a, a BBC mole maze on the NHS, and it was very much, uh, I would say, as a premise, friendly to our perspective that something's wrong with the NHS, other countries seem to do it better. Um, but I, I was being questioned by Matthew Taylor, who's um, uh, formerly, I think, of the RSA, and now um, it heads up the NHS Providers Association, who, who represents the NHS um, system. And he was trying to make an argument, effectively, that, well, what Brits prioritise more than anything else is this idea of equality, not necessarily, and, and that, therefore, the idea of having more private sector involvement is quite an affront to people, the idea that the people would have access to different quality of healthcare, even if you had universal care, if you have a bigger private sector, there's a bit of a risk in people's minds that some people are getting better health care than others. Will it take kind of pushing that over? Do, do, do you think there's a way to design a system that still fulfills that goal of everyone more or less getting equal care? Um, or do you think there would be value in trying to move on from that principle and saying, well, we want everyone to get a minimum standard of quality of care. And then it doesn't really worry me that much as some people go to a hospital that's wood paneled and, uh, you know, has a, has a uh, you get your own room and you get slightly more attention from a nurse. As long as everyone gets a general minimum quality of care, that variation in that quality of care or in the experience of that care shouldn't necessarily be of our concern. Mm. I guess you could argue it from both perspectives. You could make 
is the case that we need to move on from this idea of equality and look rather at basic standards of care. Because I think from that perspective, you could argue, well, look, if the basic standard of care is higher than what the mm. average you know, place of equality is, or, you know, I mean, there, we need to break this down first of all, there's no world even under the NHS in which people are treated equal when it comes to healthcare, postcode lotteries, the ability to advocate for yourself, like equality is an impossible goal, but let's say in some hypothetical worlds, every patient under the, yes, under the NHS were truly treated equal. What is that standard of care? And if you move to a different system where some people are higher and some people are lower, is that standard of care, that basic standard of care over here higher? Well, then obviously you should want that regardless of the equality implications. But if we want to meet people where they're at, I think you can still make the case for equality under a social health insurance system or a different kind of system. And, and to kind of go more into detail about what I was just saying, I mean, how can you look at a waiting list of 6.6 .6 million people and think that there's something equal and fair about that? That is not the definition of fair. We're seeing a record number of Brits paying out of pocket to access uh, private healthcare treatment because they can't, they can't wait on that list any longer. Um, if you are wealthy enough, you can leave the country and get your treatment. I mean, none of this is fair to those 6.6 .6 million and counting, right? That waiting list is, is only going up. So to defend this status quo, I think is just nearly impossible to do. I think far, what, what would truly be equal in my mind is if every individual had the ability to choose their healthcare, to choose their provider and to access it in a timely fashion. Um, acknowledging that people might make different choices and that something in the medical field might be right for someone and wrong for someone else isn't rejecting equality. It's just actually noting that the individual had some say in their healthcare and that's what was truly equal about the situation. And I think that is the equality defense of social health insurance systems. They are empowering every individual to make their own choice. I do not see a case that the 6.6 .6 million on the NHS England waiting list right now are empowered in any meaningful way. Well, Kate, thank you very much for joining the IEA podcast. That was Kate Andrews, uh, Economics Editor at The Spectator. Thanks, Matt.